Well, what I'd like to do with you this evening and tomorrow morning, tomorrow night, and then again, uh, what is it, Friday morning, <clears throat> is look at Revelation chapter 4 and 5, two very important chapters in the book of Revelation that generally we do not pay a large amount of attention to. For example, when we do an evangelistic series, we rightly focus on certain chapters. Uh, chapter 12 is an important chapter, outlines the war in heaven. Chapter 13, with the beast and the image of the beast and the mark of the beast, very important topics for us as Seventh-day Adventists to be aware of. <clears throat> Pardon me. Chapter 14, of course, with the three angels' messages, are very significant for us as a people today. Chapter 20, with the millennium and uh, the final destruction of the wicked, that's a very important chapter. And usually, we in evangelistic series will touch on those chapters. Perhaps we'll give an overview of the seven churches lightly, maybe focus on the seventh church in particular. But we very rarely spend time with Revelation 4 and 5. And for me, that's a great loss because Revelation 4 and 5, as many Bible students have come to recognize, are really the fountainhead of the entire book of Revelation. There's information and setting and threads, verbal threads, ideas that have their origins in chapter 4 and 5 and that are woven out throughout the rest of the book of Revelation. The entire tapestry of the book of Revelation is drawn from imagery that finds its source in Revelation 4 and 5. So these are very important chapters. The two of them go together. They're a unit for us. They're, of course, they contain slightly different material, but they are an important unit. And so what I'd like to do with our time together in this four sessions that we have is um, look at Revelation 4 and 5 and how it impacts the rest of the book. So, for example, um, we'd like to look at Revelation 4 and 5 and how they relate to the great controversy theme, how Revelation 4 and 5 relate to chapter 12 and 13. Um, we're going to look at the sanctuary imagery in Revelation 4 and 5 and how that relates throughout the entire book. And then on Friday morning, I'd like to look at Revelation 4 and 5 and how it relates to Revelation chapter 19. So we're going to be spending our time, a lot of time, in Revelation 4 and 5, looking at some of the concepts, ideas, that will help us rightly understand the rest of the book of Revelation. And as I said, um, many people feel like this is the source, fountainhead of the book, and, and you can understand why. Revelation 4 and 5 have a first scene that's brought out in the heavenly sanctuary, and there's the four living creatures and the 24 elders, which form a divine council. And they appear in strategic places throughout the book. Chapter 7, chapter 11, chapter 12, chapter 15, um, chapter 19. They reappear at significant places throughout John's unfolding of the story of the book of Revelation. In addition to that, uh, in Revelation 4 and 5, as I said, the four living creatures, 24 elders. In chapter 5, we see one sitting on the throne who has a book. Then one comes to the one on the throne. The lamb who is slain takes the book and begins to open it. And as he opens it, it unfolds into the six seals, which take us into chapter 6. 
those seals are slightly interrupted, we could say, with the imagery in chapter 7, the sealing of God's people. And then the seventh seal is opened in chapter 8, which leads naturally into the trumpets. Again, introduced by a sanctuary scene, the trumpets unfold, culminating in Revelation 11, 15 through 18, where we find the seventh trumpet fully clarified and sounding, and then we have another sanctuary scene, and then we get into the great controversy imagery in chapter 12, and then following in through the rest of the book. So, in a very real and positive way, chapters 4 and 5 are very significant. Ellen White has a quote where she tells us that we should be studying the fifth chapter of the book of Revelation. And I'll get that quote to you over our time together, where we should be looking at this chapter, uh, chapter 5, she mentions particularly, but again, it's connected inseparably with chapter 4. And as we kind of go through these uh, studies together, pardon me, these studies together, it's important for us to realize that Revelation wants to unfold truths to us that will help prepare a people to stand in the day of God. Oftentimes, this group of people is called a final generation. Now, that concept, final generation, is somewhat controversial within Adventism, and clearly it needs to be more fully defined. What do we mean by the final generation? But without question, when Jesus returns, there will be a final generation, whoever they are, and prayerfully, they will comprise some of us here, all of us here, if the Lord gives us strength and life to that time. So we may approach the final generation from different perspectives, but the viewpoint that I'd like to take us to in our time together, in our little mini week of prayer before our annual convention here at Eden Valley, is to see how Revelation 4 or 5, and really the entire book, draws our mind to the great controversy, and the part that we play in that controversy. It's important for us to understand that the gospel in its fullest will prepare, ultimately prepare, a group of people to live to see Jesus Christ come. And the gospel itself will finally bring the cosmic conflict, the great controversy, we could call it, to an end. And so as we're getting into these section here, chapter 4 and 5, we want to ask the question, what is the main theme of the book of Revelation? Now, of course, we could say, well, the main theme is Jesus Christ. It is, after all, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so it's a revealing. The book of Revelation does have prophetic aspects. We believe that as historicists, where it unfolds events that in broad outline, let me say, that have not yet taken place. We're able to look back at other events and see how they are fulfilled in the book of Revelation. But in addition to that, in, in addition to be a revealing of God, in addition to giving us warnings about very important topics like the mark of the beast and the reception of the seal of God, the book of Revelation reveals God's plan. Revelation is the story, the narrative, the story of God's working through the great controversy to bring it to a fulfillment. I remember listening to Jean-Pauline give a, 
um, series of talks on Revelation, and he described something called surface currents and undercurrents, where there's the top view of the situation, and then there's what's happening kind of behind the scenes. And that's what I'd like to explore with us. And, and as we ask this question, what is the main theme? What's the main motif, main idea in the book of Revelation? We need to have some guidelines with which we can identify main themes in Scripture. Well, how do we know what a main theme is? And I'll have to share that there's two key points that could help us identify, not just in Revelation, but wherever we're reading, what are some of the main ideas the Bible writers are trying to communicate to us? What are their big picture concepts? And so two key points that have been identified as we study scripture and literature in general, and that is, is an idea repeated frequently? Is there a frequency of occurrence? Does the writer come back to a particular point over and over again? Is an idea mentioned numerous times in the book. Well, that would clearly give us an idea, a concept, that this is a main theme. In addition to that, we would also ask the question, does this idea or does this theme surface in unusual places? Does it surprise us? Does it come out and we go, wow, I wouldn't have thought of that? That's another way the Bible writer helps communicate to us something of great importance. Does it in some way catch us by surprise. So frequency of occurrence and is this main idea um, coming up in unusual contexts? Now I'd like to say very clearly from my perspective, and I think many people would agree with this, I hope you will as well, that one of the primary purposes of Revelation is to give us the unfolding story of the great controversy or as it's often called in other literature, the cosmic conflict. Uh, the primary pur purpose of Revelation is to unfold for us this story of the great controversy. Now, can we demonstrate this? You know, can we, using the book of Revelation, show this? And I want to be upfront here and let you know that this is going to be a slight shift from our traditional historicist emphasis. I want to be very clear that I support our historicist understanding. I'm very supportive of that, grounded in that. And yet, I also feel that as we look at the book of Revelation and we realize that Revelation has spoken to God's people since the time of John wrote it and is going to continue to speak to God's people, that perhaps there's another focus in the book of Revelation that we need to be thinking about. And there's a quotation in the book Education that got me thinking on this, and I'll share it with you now. It says, the central theme of the Bible, <clears throat> the theme about which every other in the whole book clusters, is the redemption plan. The restoration in the image of, excuse me, the restoration in the human soul of the image of God. So the main theme of the Bible, the theme about which Every other theme in the entire Bible clusters is God's plan of redemption. How is he going to save us? And integral to that plan, of course, is the great controversy because it's been Satan's accusations about the character of God and about the way God works and Satan's attempt to divorce 
justice and mercy from one another that have brought us into the circumstance we're in. She continues, the burden of every book and every passage of the Bible is the unfolding of this wondrous theme, man's uplifting, the power of God. He who grasps this thought has before him an infinite field of study. He has the key that will unlock to him the whole treasure house of God's word. Education 125-126. And so as we think about this passage from education, again 125-126, that the redemption plan is the big picture. And as we're looking at prophecy, and as we look at the events unfolding around us in the world today, and, and we see almost the fabric of society, at least in the United States, being torn with changes in our, our societal norms, questions about what constitutes a marriage and numerous other aspects of that as we, you know, we see these changes and we understand the importance of prophecy and being prepared for that prophetic events, we cannot lose sight of the main theme, which is God's plan to save us. How does God work his will in restoring in the human soul the image of God? How does that come about? And Another quote in the book of education also has helped define my study, not just in the book of Revelation, but in the entire Bible, and that's this. Continuing again in the book of education, it says the student, that's you and that's me, should learn to view the word as a whole. So we're going to look at the entire scripture as a whole and see the relation and to see the relation of its parts. The student should gain a knowledge of its grand central theme of God's original purpose of the world, of the rise of the great controversy, and of the work of redemption. So notice how she puts all that together. We need to gain a knowledge of the grand theme, and then she explicates it, she explains it, God's original purpose for the world, the rise of the great controversy, and the work of redemption. But that is not enough. Simply not enough. Now, she goes on to say, he, the student, should understand the nature of the two principles. How many principles? Well, there's two. There's the heavenly principle of self-denial and self-sacrifice, this circuit of beneficence, of continual giving and continual receiving. There's that heavenly principle as opposed to the principle of selfishness, of self-seeking. You have the principle of heaven, which every being in heaven um, follows, that it's the very nature of God to have this self-sacrificial dimension. Two principles. And then, of course, it's the opposite of that on the enemy side of things to try to gain for himself and to try to manipulate and force and coerce and to conceal. Interesting thought. You know, it's a book of Revelation. There's an openness where the adversary in the book of Revelation is always using deception to foster his works. Let me continue the quote again. He should understand the nature of the two principles that are contending for supremacy and should learn to trace their working through the records of history and prophecy to the great consummation. So what is she saying there? As we come to scripture and we look at history, we need to see how these two antagonistic principles are working out in the world. 
through history and prophecy. And of course, that's what the book Great Controversy does, traces these principles. But that is not enough. Continuing, he should see how this controversy enters into every phase of human experience. What controversy? The controversy between the two principles that we see in history and prophecy. He should see how this controversy enters into every phase of human experience and how in every act of life he himself reveals the one or the other of the two antagonistic motives. And how, whether he will or not, he is even now deciding upon which side of the controversy he will be found. And perhaps I could add, he will be ultimately found. So what is she saying? We're making choices and we're revealing those choices in every act of life and we're showing which one of the two antagonistic motives and that we're deciding where we're going to end up in the controversy, what side we will be found upon. That's a very serious and solemn thought. And I don't want us to think here that we have this experience, oh, I'm with Christ, I'm against Christ, with Christ and against Christ, kind of back and forth like a ping pong ball. That's not how I understand this passage, and that's not my intention as we study together. I believe that there are times when we reveal uh, motives that are clearly against God. It happens. Just on the plane over here, as I was flying here, I was trying to get into my seat, and uh, there was a man in the aisle, and I was sitting in the window seat, and there was a gentleman standing in the aisle putting his luggage away, and so I told the man, that was sitting in the row that I was supposed to get into. I said, oh, pardon me, I'm, I'm in the window seat. And he looked at the other gentleman that was standing in the aisle, putting his luggage away, and he kind of gave him this, well, he gave him a dirty look. And, you know, the guy in the aisle was just putting his luggage away, and there was really enough room for this man to stand up, but he just looked irritated, not at me, but at the man at the aisle. And I was standing there thinking, like, relax, guy. You know, it's no, I'm not in any rush. And, and in my mind, I started judging the man in the seat. And so I am there reflecting the attribute of who? Well, the accuser of the brethren. That was a small thing. It took moments. I didn't say anything to the man in the seat. Certainly didn't say anything to the man in the aisle. But clearly inside me were thoughts that were inappropriate. Who am I to judge this guy? I don't know anything about him. I don't know the difficulties he's had. I don't know the hardship he's going through. I don't know the sorrows he, anything about him. And yet, it's a lesson for us that in every act of life, we are revealing one or the other of the two antagonistic motives. And it's important for us as we study the book of Revelation and we see what the beast power is and we see the work of the dragon and then we look at history and we see all these things taking place that we realize Really, the enemy is not just out there, but the enemy is inside my heart, and that I am an integral player in the great controversy. I am not simply a bystander, someone on the sidelines watching. I am in the great controversy. I am part of it. I'm to be redeemed, I'm to be, have my human nature transformed, the character of Christ filled in my life, but I'm also at times, unfortunately, as Ellen White brings out in Steps to Christ, sometimes we're surprised into sin, and, and really 
again, I don't want anyone to get discouraged. We need to look at the trend of our life. Who has our heart? What direction we are going? But it's vitally important that we realize the great controversy is not only waging out there in the world, it's waging inside of us as well. And so as we think of um, what is the main theme of the book of Revelation, sorry, that was a very long introduction. Let's turn to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4, starting in verse 1. And as we're as you're familiar, I'm sure most of you, Revelation 2 and 3 describe the seven churches. And to each of the seven churches is given a word of encouragement to him that overcomes, to him that overcomes, to the overcomer. All these different promises, seven promises to the different churches, encouraging them in the difficulties and the trials, the vicissitudes that they face, that they might ultimately be overcomers. And then after this, turmoil, excuse me, turmoil here in the world below, then there is a shift in Revelation chapter 4. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. Pardon me. And the first voice which I heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Verse 2. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, what? First thing that John sees. He, he hears this voice, he's called up to heaven, he's up in the Spirit, he sees the door, he goes into what we will discover is the sanctuary, and what is the first thing he sees? A throne. And then, the text says, Behold, a throne was standing in heaven. It was there, and one sitting on the throne. Notice this. John's attention first is drawn to the throne, and then it's drawn to the one sitting on the throne. Now, it's interesting. That is a favorite expression, one of the favorite expressions of John. There's several that refer to the Father. In the book of Revelation, that is one of them the one sitting on the throne, he who sat on the throne, one sitting on the throne. You find it in numerous places, many times in these two chapters in particular. But before we look at the one sitting on the throne, the first thing John sees is the throne. This is really vital. The throne is a tremendously important image in the book of Revelation. I would say that it's so important it shows us what the theme is in the book of Revelation. The throne appears 47 times in the book of Revelation. 47 times. It occurs in 17 out of 22 chapters. And of the remaining five chapters, it's implied three times. So there's only two chapters in the entire book, two out of 22 chapters, that really don't have a reference back to the throne. It's very important. Revelation 1.5 starts with the seven spirits that are before the throne. It's integral here in Revelation 4 and 5. And uh, Revelation 20 verse 11 describes the throne, a great white throne from which earth and heaven flee away. It becomes the focus of attention at the end of time. The throne of God becomes the throne of God and the Lamb. We are encouraged to sit on that throne if we are overcomers. The throne is a major image in the book of Revelation. Because of this, many Bible students, many scholars, commentators, 
they come with the viewpoint to the book of Revelation that you see the throne. And of course, the throne is a symbol of what? Well, who sits on thrones? Well, kings sit on thrones. Queens sit on thrones. I suppose a prince could sit on a throne. But a throne is a symbol of authority. It's a symbol of rule. That's the image brought back, brought to us, rather, excuse me, from the concept of a throne. And because of that, many Bible students, um, evangelicals, Seventh-day Adventists, see the throne and understand that the major theme in the book of Revelation is the sovereignty of God, that God rules. And it's clear, ultimately, God does rule. And so there is an aspect of sovereignty. Listen to this quotation by an Adventist uh, theologian. I believe he's from Bulgaria. Uh, he wrote a book called The Throne Motif in the Book of Revelation. Very interesting book. And he says the vision, this vision here, shows that indisputable supremacy of the heavenly power center. Notice that phrase, indisputable supremacy. It can't be questioned. For him, the image of the throne brings up the idea, you know, that God rules and that is unquestioned. Unquestioned. Um, Mervyn Maxwell says the same thing. Excuse me, let me just give me a moment to refine my place. Mervyn Maxwell says this, from the book God Cares, volume 2, page 152, he describes this shift from the earth to heaven, and he says it this way, in a much more friendly, winsome way, as, as Maxwell writes very well, his writing sparkles that way. But he says this, there really is someone upstairs who is in charge. So these are just two representatives, I could give you many more, of different individuals, these are both Adventists, that would say, when you look at the book of Revelation and you encounter the throne, it is a major theme in the book. And the theme is there is somebody upstairs. There is somebody in charge. It is indisputable supremacy. God is going to reign and nothing is going to stop that. Now we might say amen to that. And there's an aspect of that. It's certainly true that God is going to reign. But I want to suggest to you that's not the point in the book of Revelation. And I realize this might be a, a minor view. Um, if you're interested, I've written an article that just came out in the um, Journal of the Adventist Theological Society and in the Elder's Digest, or I forgot the name of the digest, they put it online as well, which fleshes this out a little bit more. But I want to say that the more we read the book of Revelation, as we read Revelation carefully, we find out that really... It's very important for us to understand that the heavenly council that surrounds God's throne, that the issue facing them is the rebellion of Satan, which is paralleled by rebellion on earth. In other words, in the book of Revelation, the throne, while it is a sign of God's rule and a sign of God's sovereignty, I'm not denying that. I am saying, though, that we need to look at the complementary and partially contradictory idea that the throne in Revelation is under attack. It is disputed territory. Now, why do I say that? Well, turn with me back to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, and starting in verse 12 to the church of Pergam, in verse 13, the speaker, the one that has a sharp two-edged sword, says this, verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's, the King James says, seat is. 
but really it's the same Greek word for throne. So Satan has a throne. It's brought out in Revelation 2.13. And we find, as we read carefully in the book of Revelation, that Satan has a throne, God has a throne. God's allies have a throne. He shares the throne with the Lamb. And Satan's allies have a throne. Satan shares his throne with the beast out of the book of Revelation. Now we know in Isaiah chapter 14, in verse 13, where it tells us, and John draws on some of this imagery, that Satan wants to put his throne above the stars of God. And so John picks up this imagery of Satan wanting to usurp God's throne. And so while the throne permeates the book of Revelation, and ultimately, clearly, God does reign. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not questioning that. But as you read Revelation carefully, it doesn't say God reigns present tense until you get to chapter 19. In that kind of a context. And so it's important for us to realize, we look through the book of Revelation, that the throne is under attack. It is disputed territory. We could say contested territory. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 13. Revelation 13, and in verse 1, if you have the King James, it says, And I stood on the sand of the seashore, speaking about John. If you have another translation, a modern translation, it will most likely say, And the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. In other words, Satan, the dragon has come away from the war that's outlined in chapter 17. He goes off to make war, kind of off looking for allies. And then in chapter 13, he's there standing on the seashore, and a beast comes up out of the sea, and he describes the beast, ten horns, seven heads. We'll look at that later on um, at a, in another session. But at the last part of chapter 13 in verse 2, and the dragon gave him, that is the beast, his power and his, what? Well, the King James says, seat again, but that's the word throne and great authority. And so, just as God has a throne and gives his throne, allows his throne to be shared with the Lamb and ultimately with us, Satan has a throne. He shares it with his ally, the beast. And so we begin to see in the book of Revelation, as we continue to reread it carefully, and we understand that the war scene, the war in heaven scene in chapters 12 and 13, that um, form almost like a new beginning in the book of Revelation, the, the ideas or the threads of those chapters also impact the entire book. And we'll, we'll share that tomorrow evening in Revelation 4 and 5 and chapter 12 and 13 are opposite parallels to one another. They're connected with one another. Now notice this quotation from Councils to Teachers, page 33. When Adam sinned, man broke away from the heaven-ordained center. A demon became the central power in the world. Where God's throne should have been, Satan placed his throne. The world laid its homage as a willing offering at the feet of the enemy. Councils to Teachers, Page 33, paragraph 1. Where God's throne should have been, Satan has placed his throne. And again, as we read through Revelation carefully, we see that the throne is a main point. And you still may be thinking, yes, but 
how do we really know it's contested territory? Well, we also see this in addition to Satan having a throne and his allies having a throne and he wanting to replace God's throne with his throne from the book of Isaiah. We also see in the book of Revelation that Satan works in ways that are usually reserved for God in the book of Revelation. In other words, in the book of Revelation, Satan has God-like actions that are brought out in the book. And we'll see a little bit more of that, as I said, tomorrow evening. But let's just look at um, two of them really quickly here. And so Satan as a, as a, <clears throat> how can I describe this? I, the word I want to say is character, but I don't want to imply anything fictional. But Satan as a character, as a entity in the book of Revelation, has a full characteristics. He's persistent in battle. He is the deceiver. He is blaspheming. And by the way, the word blasphemy has these connotations, this idea of slander. So his, his methods of operation are deception and slander, misrepresentation, which are totally opposite to God's methods in the book of Revelation where he is a revealer. He opens himself up to the entire universe. But Satan mimics God-like actions. Revelation um, chapter 13, well, we're there. Let's continue there. But as we do it, uh, let's notice, as we just read here in verse, the last part of verse 2, it says, the dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. So here we have the word give, and it's in the active sense. The dragon gave the beast his power, his throne, and great authority. And then a little bit later on in verse the last part of verse 3, it says, The whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast, in verse 4, and they worshipped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to wage war with him? So you see those two verses where the dragon gave, and it's an active verse. Now, in the book of Revelation, it's important for us to understand that John often uses uh, the passive form of the word to give, and he uses it in a way to describe God's actions. So, for example, in Revelation chapter 2, talking about the, um, <clears throat> the four angels, it says, to them it was given power that they could destroy the earth. And they're told to hold back their winds, but to them it was given. So that's a passive phrase, passive expression of the word to give. Bible students often call that a divine passive. It's John's way of talking about God's activity, but in a circumlocution where he's not really describing God. And another example would be Revelation chapter 8 in verse 2. Revelation chapter 8 in verse 2, there's the seven angels and seven trumpets were given to them. So there you have that divine passive again. Revelation 8, 3 and 4, there's the angel with the censer before the altar, and much incense was given to him, that he might offer it with the prayers of all the saints on the altar, which is before God. So you have this all throughout the book of Revelation. Um, white robes were given 
to the souls, those that were crying out under the altar in Re Revelation chapter 6 under the fifth seal. So over and again in Revelation, you have this concept of a divine passive. Notice what it says here in Revelation 13. We're still there. Revelation 13 in verse 5. And there was given to him, given to the beast, a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies, and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. Notice the beginning of the verse and the end of the verse. Something is given to him. In verse 7, it was also given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority over every tribe, people, tongue, and nation was given to him. So you see that? Now, most Bible students, many Bible commentators, I should say, as they engage with this passage, they suggest that this is a divine passive. That it's God that's giving, but he's giving it in a restricted time, 42 months. And so he's giving it to the beast, but he's putting limits on it. And if you read many commentaries on this passage, they'll bring out that idea. I don't mean to be contrary, but I disagree. And um, I, I, the reason I disagree is because I think if we look at the book of Revelation carefully, and we reread it, we see that the great controversy is the main theme, that the throne is disputed territory, and that Satan is doing everything he can to replace God. And if we read the passage in context, John has just before this clearly said that it's the dragon that gives the beast his authority and his power and his throne. And it's the dragon that gives him authority. So John clearly says the dragon gave him, the dragon gave him, and then he shifts to the passive mode, it was given. Well, just if you're just reading the passage and you ask the question, well, who is doing, excuse me, who is doing the giving? Clearly the answer is Satan here. So what's John doing? John's using the passive sense, passive tense of this word to give, but he's using it in a way, clearly referring to Satan, to highlight for us how deeply Satan is wanting to replace God. And that Satan, although he ends up being a defeated foe, and he is defeated now, praise God, he is defeated now, his power has been broken at the cross, still he has tremendous force and he is doing everything he can to slander God, to deceive the world, and to put himself as the object of worship. What's the main theme in the book of Revelation? The great controversy. The throne is an important article of furniture in the book of Revelation, yet the throne, while it does convey rule, it also shows us in the bigger context that it is an object under attack. The throne is, as someone says, contested territory. That is the undercurrent of the book of Revelation. That really is its substructure and its foundation, the great controversy. And again, it's vitally important for us to realize that the great controversy is raging not only out there, but inside here, inside my heart and yours. And so the question for us as we think about this, as we draw to a close now, as we think about this, important for us to ask is, whose ally do we want to be? In Revelation, God has a throne. He shares the throne with the Lamb. The dragon has a throne. He shares this throne with the beast. God's allies partake in his throne. Satan's allies are offered to partake in his throne. Whose throne 
do we want to be associated with? Whose attributes do we want to reflect? Whose characteristics do we cherish? Which of the two antagonistic powers do we want to be on the side of? There's a war that broke out in heaven, and right now it's raging here on this world. And as this world begins to wrap up, uh, as we see things begin to unfold, and it feels like the fabric of society is tearing apart at the seams, it's important for you and for me to be on God's side in the great controversy, to allow Him full rule in our hearts and lives. And so in addition to the prophetic and the historic aspects of Revelation, which are extremely important, let's not forget that God wants to rule in our lives. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your grace and for your love. And thank you for the book of Revelation, the unfolding, the revealing. We pray, Lord, that as we continue to study it, as we look at Revelation 4 and 5 and different aspects of Revelation, our hearts would be drawn more closely to you. Thank you for your tremendous grace. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.